Welcome to a new season, season four of Mentors on the Mic, your resource for all things mentors in the entertainment industry. We give you interviews with some of the most incredible people in some of the coolest jobs, and we focus on where they started and how they moved up to where they are today. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller. And I cannot wait to share with you some of these incredible mentors that I have for you this season. If you haven't yet, please give a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you can, follow me on Instagram. I'm at Michelle Simone Miller, and I'm at Mentors on the Mic. Um, And send me, just DM me, right? Comment. Tell me what you think of these episodes. Tell me what you'd look for in the next one. I want to hear it all. All right, let's get to it. This is Deborah Granick. Deborah Granick is an independent film and documentary film director and screenwriter. She is most known for 2004's Down to the Bone, Uh, Maybe you've heard of her uh, for 2010's Winter's Bone, which starred Jennifer Lawrence in her breakout performance. Granick was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Jennifer Lawrence was nominated for Best Actress. It was her first nomination for Best Actress in, like, all the different categories. SAG, Oscars, Golden Globes. Um, and Deborah Granick is also known for 2018's Leave No Trace, which is a film based on the book My Abandonment by Peter Rock. And this, you know, particular story and career is so interesting. You know, we talk all about Granick directing her first short film, Snake Feed, uh, out of NYU. And that was accepted into the Sundance Institute's lab program for screenwriting and directing, which we talked about. And that got propelled into the feature film Down to the Bone um, in 2004. And so we talk about building her team, working with her creative partner, Anne Rosalini. And how she created all of these films, what went into them, what goes into being an indie film director and writer. And now she works a lot, you know, with documentaries. She's finishing up a documentary multi-part series. And so we discussed that as well. But it's so fascinating, her process in going into a new project, what inspires her, how she copes with the, the heavy subject matters, what goes into casting someone like Jennifer Lawrence, who had worked prior to Winter's Bone, but had not received the level of fame and, um, you know, sort of being propelled into the public spotlight until this film. So she, in in a way, you could say she discovered her, you know, and what that means to um, consistently do well at Sundance. That's a whole other thing that comes with a lot. So I, I found it so interesting to to you know speak with her. This was something that was a long time in the making. I wrote to her originally in March 2020, um, and you know sort of persisted and kept up with her. She was always so nice in our feedback and our in our email exchange and our phone call. And and finally we get to you know be able to share this with all of you guys. So without further ado, here's Deborah Granick. Well, welcome, Deborah, to Mentors on the Mic. Thanks so much for doing this, for being here. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you. I'm glad to be in a discussion with you as well. Thank you. Um, I always like to start off the podcast with what was your first role in the entertainment industry? What would you count as your first entry point? Not to be prickly, not to be weird, not to start on a dark note, but I always have to qualify the word industry, right? And mm. entertainment, like so actually kind of came out of Brandeis, uh, you know, with a documentary foundation, with having done a project that involved following a man on South Street who used to traverse from downtown Waltham to the train station, train kiosk. And I lived down down the street. And so commuting to school, I would pass him. Mm. And I was, I had taken an overview class history of documentary. And I was very turned on. I, I, it was augmenting everything that I liked. And when I was studying politics, when I was studying sociology, it was, it was this evidence that everything I was reading philosophically or historically was, had it really happened. I don't know if the assignment was to do it in our area, but it was something you knew you had access to. It was, it was a humble project. Wow. Be able to approach somebody or some situation where you would be given permission. And that's where the, the unhoused person in Waltham, you know, he, he basically said, you know, yeah, we could do this. And he was just very amenable. And, you know, and the project actually kind of 
proved to be daunting for me because I, I was so naive, you know, it was like this classic story. If I, if I were writing the short story, I'd be compassionate towards the little Deborah, you know, didn't know how fast, like talking to an unhoused person would lead to larger questions and feeling of helplessness like that. Right. And then when I found out that maybe he had psych issues that were complex as well, it wasn't about danger, but it was about just the weird raw sadness I felt about um, having a conversation with someone that I understood, understood, understood. And then all of a sudden I didn't, I didn't understand mm. And how did he get here? And yeah, questions, you know, and, and a feeling of helplessness. You can't do very much about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so it was kind of a fascinating nutshell of like the fact that documentary is, can be a rough road, you know, and yes, actually as a counterpoint, I talk to my team, you know, my close team that I make films with, I say, we have to do a documentary about an upbeat subject. So when you say entertainment industry, right, you can kind of get from this, just this yeah. blue streak that I just went on, see myself fitting easily into that, that framework, bread and butter, living, do I want access? Do I want, or do I want to be invited to participate? Do I want to contribute to what we call the big picture of national entertainment? You know, what might get streamed? Of course I do. Of yeah. course I want to make accessible content that delights people, that challenges people, that challenges me first and foremost, of course, but challenges you. Most likely there's a lot of other people that live with some of the same questions or get drawn in by some of the same characters. Right. You know, I'm part of huge demographics, right? Just by being female, there's a lot, a lot of people out there inhabiting, you know, female bodies that want to see female protagonists. Absolutely. Be well on screen, be interesting, be exciting, be more than their body or their face, you know, and in that sense, of course, I'm, I'm a participant and, a, and an aspiring participant to be a part of the en- entertainment industry. And then if my work gets recognized, I'm absolutely brought in, right? So absolutely. I have made a film that garnered some audience and garnered some actually commercial, you know, unexpectedly, but some commercial viability. And therefore it was eligible to participate in sort of these more national contexts, like yeah. the Academy process or, you know, a campaign to nominate it and, not, and so forth. And so yeah. then for sure, I felt a part of a national entertainment industry. Yeah. Like I was a worker in an industry that had a yeah. and that they assemble annually. And of course, by being brought into as a participating member of the Academy, you know, there is some very wonderful democratic process there, right? The minute you end up participating in a national campaign, yeah, then you become part of this community. Right. And on the bright side, I have to check myself about my so-called outsider set. And so yeah. I inhabit both these worlds where right. some of the things I want to do don't fit into that rubric. And yeah. then other times I su- I'm surprised by the porousness of what those brackets used to mean to me about what, what couldn't fit in them. I like the expansive definition of what can fit inside. Right. That, oh, know? I like that, especially since it evolves over time. And we're going to talk about that. Like, I want to talk about how an indie film, like, you know, for example, Winter's Bone becomes also commercially accepted as well. But before that, I mean, like you said, you were talking about you know, the film that you created for Brandeis, then you also, I believe, went to NYU, right? And yes, you created yes. a film for them, for, well, not for them, but it was your thesis. In the, in the program, yeah. Yeah. And then in between there was a big kind of Boston area hatching period that had no mm. institutional alignment other than concession that the rapidly expanding cable industry had to make to the general public. What democratic style bone can we throw? And what it was, was this idea that there would be this one vein of access onto these cable platforms that was generated by the community for non-commercial purposes. Mm. And that people, by definition, would be getting this training and that media would open up and that get your camera, yeah. come, to, come on Saturday morning. We're going to learn the basics of camera. We'll learn the basics of wow. sound, expansion, who, who knows how to push the button on a video camera and, and then edit. So then, of course, the digital editing platforms come along, and that's another expansion of uh, incubation for people like me, people yeah. in Boston, in urban places where this kind of community, I almost want to say shareware was available, this, this um, mutual aid that really 
assisted me in my process. It really confirmed for me that I did like to spend my time recording, trying to find how to tell a story. Right. And that really set me on a path to say, okay, I am really liking, I'm doing a lot of industrial films. I got involved with industrial filmmaking, you know, kind of, I want to say progressive industrial. It was for, it was for the agencies that look out for industrial safety. And then NYU was rigorous training ground. It, it, part of it operates the best part, I think, like a boot camp where you're immersed and that's where you saw those credits for doing all the different roles on other people's films. I mean, one of the big missions at the time was to make sure that you understood what goes into making a film. No, I loved that. I loved seeing that you had your hand in all of it. Yes, yes. And I think also to understand that it's very much a group project. And though we may always look for the Helmer name, yeah. And you have to, if you're doing 18 hour days or 12 hour days, so is sound, so is set. So, you know, and to just fully understand that. So there was no more of this prima donna magic man that just directed films that you know all hail the the superstar it was to try to like debunk the superstar thing yeah there are no in film you know so collaborative that's where the industry needed that they always needed to pin it on a name and a brand and i understand that so in some ways letting a lot of women into the industry was a little bit threatening because if you're going to really question that, if you're going to have a generation of women who like even question a film by, I- I'm not speaking for all women. I'm just, it was, yeah. just it, was, it was a period to rough it up, to interrogate, yeah. Yeah, to interrogate what the idea of the single male genius was about, you know, right. and the norm at the yeah, time, the norm, the norm at the time. Absolutely. And so that, that training ground was fabulous. It was, it was rigorous, actually. Did you have a lot of women in your class? Yeah, our, our, my year was parody. My year was, that was the first time they had had 50-50. They worked very hard on that. They worked wow. tirelessly to make it happen, actually. And it was, I believe it's stayed pretty robustly there. So I did come of age, you know, my third coming of age. I mean, I just, I was an older student at that time. Well, yeah, but that's, that's part of it. That's amazing. You know, and and I have to say that the foundation was absolutely, and then of course it matters a lot who your producing partner is. I'm sure. So yes, I, I fell into one more, really terrifically growthful dynamic, which was to meet my producing partner Anne Rosalini. She programmed my film from coming out of film school, my short mm. film, Steak Feed, right? Yes, yeah, and really made a meal out of it. Like had me participate in a Q and A, and and we stayed in touch and and. She said, what do you want to do? What, what project do you have? And she knew that the Sundance Lab had been effective. So not only were they doing what I mentioned earlier about it, increasing the diversity and, and both on, on the gender and, and the race front, you know, they were drawing in new filmmaking sources. Mm. They were also asking short film, people who had made short films, do you have a long film, you know, a, a feature length film that you're interested in? Oh. And the lab initially had this very almost like practical approach. Like, is there um, a larger story in the one you've created or is there something adjacent to it? Is there something that you would benefit from coming to a laboratory in which you are prepared to tell a longer story? Wow. And so I had been working on that story through the lab and Anne said, what of it? You know, how is it doing? Is it, do you, are you in a position to let me see this <laughs> script? And she read it and we scouted the area. It was, it was an accessible script to place in upstate New York, 90 miles north of the city. And she's like, I think we should do this. And one of our first steps was to scout and, and, and ask how small could our crew be? And then of course we did. So here's the practical. Indigent films were being made for a very small money. However, casting directors were going to have this indispensable role. Casting directors were going to make these films happen because these casting directors had links to people rising actors, emerging actors who wanted fuller roles, who didn't need the paycheck. They needed a great role. Yeah. I mean, everyone needs a paycheck. I just meant. No, but, it, but it, that wasn't waiting. their main goal. Their goal was to find really good work to be yes. a part of. Yeah. And so these casting directors were the Mavericks. They were the, they were the Oz behind the curtain. Mm. It was connecting very small, humble scripts that could be shot in available locations with no special effects and small crews to talent that to work in this method. 
work in the script. And was this in pursuit of a sh- of a short still or for the feature length version? This is the feature length version. This right. is a film that Checking. actually was an expansion, a fuller story of the story that inspired Snake Feet. Snake Feet. Right. And just out of curiosity, did I mean, I know you said that Anne asked you this question, but did you have the idea for the feature length film when you made Snake Feet or did you have some sort of script or some sort of idea of how it would go? Or oh, you were no, just kind no, of no. developing it as you go? Yeah. At the time of making the short, it was yeah. not the short. Okay. And to be honest, I would love to be a filmmaker that could say to you, like, like people I admire in Europe, you know, Agnes Varda or even some of the big names in Europe, you know, where all of a sudden they just sometimes pivot and make a short. At the time, but Europe does an amazing job making shorts an art form versus just a calling card, right? Right. That's so here, in, that's an interesting distinction yeah. because that you're right here. It is a calling card. It is something that hopefully will get you more attention to garner, you know, a feature film. That's the goal. But I think you're right. They do a fantastic job of nurturing filmmakers to create beautiful short films that are meant to be short films. Yeah. Yeah. But there were filmmakers that were, like had made five or six shorts. Like yeah. their career was, they, they was came to the festival interesting. immediately and their films had a following in the, in the short film community. Yeah. I wish so, we had that here. Yeah. I mean, people have tried and, and, and there are, some, it was a big, it was a big movement to actually showcase and make shorts important in some other festivals. Right. You know, like there's short, now we finally have these, Short programs, right? Where, yeah, know, I love attending story. those. I think that's a completely different way of of sharing your story. And so I personally love going to film festivals and only seeing their short programs sometimes because it's yeah. it's just it's and it's lovely to then, you know, spend a couple hours watching films and then having a larger panel with all the filmmakers. Do you ever consider like creating a short again, going back to that? that medium and that form of storytelling? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, I just finished an email yesterday with oh, okay. my, my friend on the street. He's a great shooter and things are happening quickly on, on a subject matter that we're interested in. And he's like, what if we did a short? And I was like, oh my God, I think that's yes. good. And so, yes, I do. I do think all the time. And good. I think it was Vin Vendors who once said that all filmmakers have these notebooks of films that won't get made, you know? Right. And, oh my God, you know, I, I'll meet somebody who's quirky or uh, or delightful or unexpected, or I'll be scouting a feature. I remember scouting a feature in Oregon for Leave No Trace. And there were just these anecdotes just in this one area we we're scouting. And that night I was like, just these five people we spoke to today would just be a great short. Right. The short would just be like Oregon every day or something. And, you know, it was just these, these five perspectives. But then I was like, oh, but then I'd like to do one for every state. You know, that's my life's work. I was like, okay. My life state is to make, and my life's purpose is to make a small portrait of five people from all 50 states, you know, oh, interesting. you know, I like to think of these conceptually or to connect with lots of filmmakers and we all do one, you know, that would be very, oh. that would be a really cool project. Yeah. So those things make me so happy to think about because they're feasible, they're doable, you know, no one needs to really yeah. write that, but yes. Yeah, so I, I do like to pivot, but the short films showcasing them, acknowledging them, having Anne notice one and, and programming, having the French community, like, you know, invite short filmmakers and then make them feel like their yes. filmmaking is worthwhile and that, and that Important. enjoyed. All of that was a huge boost to saying, I'd like, I definitely want to continue filmmaking. And, but to, to your point, when I was doing the film to complete my assignment at NYU, I was not thinking not even. that subject. That's and fair. Also, it was a difficult subject. So I was like, yeah, it might not have been one something you would have thought you'd I mean, want to pursue. But of course, I went on to just absolutely pursue right. it, you know. But I was like, oh, holy, holy yeah, you know, long term addiction, it's heavy, you know. Um, so, see, so the ups and downs of recovery is heavy, is very heavy. I mean, I was going to ask about that too, because, you know, just for, for context for the audience, so you went from Snake Feed. We went through the Sundance Institute Lab program for screenwriting and directing with that. And then you created in 2004 um, uh, Down to the Bone, which was fr- like sort of adapted story of, of Snake Feed and a fictionalized depiction of their struggles. And so with with Anne Rosalini, as you mentioned. And so, I mean, yeah, that is, that is, you know, years of being in this subject matter. And you tend to choose. I think it in- seems to inspire you. You know, very intense, as you said, you know, very dramatic, very uh, 
sometimes very difficult subject matters to be consumed by for a length of time. So how, I mean, we talked about it briefly earlier, but like how do you as, as the filmmaker, as the person in the helm of it, deal with that mentally and emotionally and, you know, not get caught up in almost like the transference of how that feels. I, I kind of just wanted to to ask about that because you're spending so yeah. much time with this. Yes. And I'm, I'm so in the, in the thick of it now with a yeah. multi-part documentary that I'm, um, you know, I had to say I'm finishing it for years. I bet mean, this summer we are finished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Congrats. Oh, well, it, that's big. Oh yeah. Oh God. No, um, I can see it in your yeah, face. It's yeah, like it's like it's like you're like Michelle. You don't even know. In order to cope with a really devastating topic, of course, my answer is to look for the and and what what it is that can be. What what can come from ashes? And one of the participants wisely said, "You know, America loves a comeback kid, right? You know, in our storytelling." And that is so true. Yeah. And then he said after like a couple seconds, you know, but you just hope they love the comeback kid more than they are attracted to the great downfall. So that's one of the like balancing acts of the entertainment industry, right? Mm. The great downfall versus the comeback. Kid, you know? So true. And, and I, of course, want to be one of the people in the camp that's trying to tell the story of the comeback kid, you know, and the scrappy survivor, the stray dog, the, what is it like to be, to try to survive when you've gotten some kind of a scarlet letter or when you've been um, outcast or right. to a pariah status of some kind. The other side of what makes all that work doable is the people you meet. Yeah. You feel very lucky. You feel like, oh my God, this is a dream job. I have a question about this because this yeah. is, first of all, I've heard you talk about this. I've heard you talk about the process of scouting, but I wanted to ask you about it for to, to kind of go over it on the podcast. So for example, with Winter's Bone, I heard you talk specifically in an interview. Actually, I heard it was Jennifer Lawrence who spoke briefly about how you ask a lot of questions and that nothing passed through the movie that didn't pass through the fingers of people who were there who said, yes, that that does happen. Or People do say that. And so in hearing you call them almost informants, which I kind of love, how do you develop that group of like a trustworthy group of people that you can sort of bounce those ideas off of and say, is this factual? Is this authentic? Is yeah. this, am yeah. I creating that world? How do you come across? How do you sort of recruit those people? Well, there's a term that's used. I'm sure it's used in like reconnaissance missions of all <laughs> filmmakers sometimes love you know, a lot of military, benign military or positive military analogies, you know, yeah. the idea of a, a unit that works hard and you're in the trenches. So a lot of metaphors. Yes. yes. You're not going to get tear gas, but it's, it's arduous. It's intense, long hours. You have to move as a, as a unit. You have to be very synchronized. You have to be very for each other and you have, you know, have each other's back, all that stuff. Yeah. And we also use the word recce, you know, reconnoiter, which is like, I think a military, you know, it's a mixture between reconnaissance and spreading out. Right. And going to look at your perimeter and figure out what the, what the set has, what the, what the location offers. And you, you need a fixer, right? You need a local. Mm. So any film, it's almost like a cool podcast in the filmmaking geek world would be like just a podcast of four fixers that worked. Like, doesn't matter what film, if it's going to be a film that's going to be filmed in a real community mm. based on some real details that are authentic, you're going to need a fixer. How do you find said fixer? How do you identify that? Frequently, it's serendipitous. Okay. Let's just say if you were working in a border town, I, I, I do, I heard from some colleagues, like there are a couple known fixers that work out of Juarez or, you know, like that know the border and, and can do that, can help, okay. you know. Can well, what help. about, um, what about Winter's Bone? How Winter's do you Bone was, was a miracle. It was like, oh, just the proper film commission had a, a person that was assigned to us, the Missouri Film Commission. She said, Amazing. I am from the Ozarks, but I, I haven't lived there in years. I live up north. I live in, in St. Louis. But my brother still lives in the Ozarks. And my brother knows a heck of a lot about the region. And he was a Renaissance man. He, mm. he was a um, deeply religious person who was tuned into the religious part of, you know, we, that's part of the Bible Belt. And he was very, he was a spiritual man. He was so steeped in the geology and botany of, of his state and folklore of his state. And he could speak 
very beautifully and warmly to us as outsiders. You know, we were city slickers coming down. Yeah. What business have we here? You know, but then he found, he, he kind of matches. He did like a cultural exchange, right? He's like, okay, are there any Ozark families that are willing to meet some city slickers from the East Coast? They, they're interested in telling a story down here. It's based on a novel that was written locally, you know. Okay, yeah, that helps. Do have any volunteers? And he found some families like, oh, we're kind of cute. Well, we'll meet them, you know. But yeah. he, so he made this like cultural moment where they said, yes, we were all too happy. Do you do that all before casting a project or is it in, in tandem? Is it subsequent to? I mean, I'm just kind was, of curious at the order of things. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was probably a little bit before, and then it becomes very, then it becomes very simultaneous. Yeah. Like, like Anne and I would then return to like either LA or New York and be conducting casting sessions. We're going to meet yeah. Yeah, exactly where we're going to meet. Where we're going to meet Dale Dickey. Where we're going to meet Jennifer at the time. You know, yeah. where we're where we're looking at a lot of women in that age range, young women in that age range, and we're looking at different key roles where there would have to be memorization, where there would have to be a deep understanding of filmmaking process with repetition and takes and coverage and, you know, someone who yeah. just, so that process is happening. And then of course we're having to find who would talk to the costume designer about whether authentic that and maybe whether yeah. some, uh, some garments from local people and how to source that and yeah. um, trying to figure out who could maybe be the children. If we didn't have to cast the children through standard methods, whether we could cast very locally and, so, Very locally, um, yeah. local to the house, if I yes. remember correctly. Yes. yes, local to the house. And those things are simultaneous. When, when, once you know that the film project is going to go, or even, no, even to get it ready. I mean, like, even when you don't know, I mean, because honestly, sort of legitimate production company that we thought was going to work with us for that did pull out very last minute. Ooh, how last minute? I think we were set for November, and I think it was like, it was Halloween. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes yeah. the stories you hear in filmmaking are just insane. Yeah. Are you an actor? Do you always get that you should write a role for yourself? Did you know that Issa Rae wrote a web series that became the foundation for her Emmy-winning show, Insecure? In one of her past episodes, actor and mentor Tony Goldwyn talked about doing Ghost in a string of films and realizing he would have no control over his career unless he made his own opportunities. How does one go about doing that? Well, I recommend Emily Grace's Write Your Dream Role Starter Kit. You might remember Emily Grace from season three of Mentors on the Mic. She tells you to stop waiting for the industry to give you a role and write the role you were born to play. The Write Your Dream Role Starter Kit will help you write a compelling character that is tailored to your strengths, help show others what roles you were meant to play, and keep you in the creative hot seat. Go to the link in my show notes for how to get your starter kit now for free. Well, so so then take us back to that place. So... Did, when, because you know, people forget this, but you know, because it had such commercial success, but it really was this indie film, this indie project. So you came across this book, you knew you wanted to develop it. When did it get funding? When did you know this maybe team or company attach itself? Then later detach themselves. How did those initial? What was the initial sort of yeah. setup? So I know you're interested in this. Like, it's not. It's it's something that maybe I don't give enough credence to because I know any filmmaker that's looking at building blocks, it's error by omission to say that the, the scrappy film upstate that was done on a handy cam, you know, 200,000, the indigent style film, down to the bone, that film did have recognition. Sundance yes. was my incredible ally. They, the, you know, at the time, the actress Vera Farmiga got significant recognition. Yes. She, she was strong work as the oh, lead. Oh, yeah. And I think people understood that, you know, there was so much more to her, her facets and, and what she could do and, and the work that she would be interested in doing than, you know, than maybe previously been offered to her. So that was a very positive outcome on some level, not nothing financially or anything like that. But what that does, of course, is for a hot minute, the question is, oh, what will you do next? You know, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> it's always, uh, I yeah, feel like yeah. people, what people and, ask. Yeah. And what was interesting was, the question's really barbed, actually, because it's like, what will you do next that we think we can just absolutely guarantee that it will make mm-hmm. our money back? And what, and what known 
recognizable, bankable people will you use? Right. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. I was confused because I was like, oh, I just got recognition for like, or our team got recognition for the the, the freshness of introducing new people. Right. Uh, you know, they, she wasn't brand new. She was already a really heavy. You know, yeah, but but in terms of the so scale like, of fame and. Exactly. Like not try to break down that system of everything having to be based on the bank of the star or the financial. Yes. And that list was so limited and it, and it was based on just the priors, you know, it was, it was, it's almost like the negative quality of the algorithm, right? Like no adventure. Yeah. Only retrying what worked before. No imagination. That's no growth. That's zero growth, right? Exactly. That's zero culture expansion. If you just keep redoing what's just done. So the winner's bone at the time, John was that person that had a, a name. I, I didn't like seeing emails that said, well, FYI, John's not very this or that, you know, he's a little bit like, I hated seeing that valuation of human artists, you know, um, this is John Hawk. Yeah. For people yeah. that don't know. The movie. Yeah. And, but like, Anne's like, screw that. He's top of my charts, you know, and, you know, and then she, like maybe see like additional work by him that really helped me like, God, oh God. Yeah. He would be so strong in this. Right. So, and, and will he, and he was gracious and he said yes. And put his guts into it, you know? He, yeah. And literally, I mean, yeah. Don Hawks don't commit lightly when they're in, they're in to even to great cost to themselves, you know, like right. they're in and, um, and, was there then a push for the leading actress to be a famous? Well, luckily in that demographic, like what you mean, you can't, you can't, when you're saying that you're going to work with someone between the ages of 16 and 18, yeah. the pressure was to like cast people that were 26 to play an 18 year old. I was going to ask, I mean, I'm sure that came up. And yeah. And we had to go through that a lot, a lot, a lot. And then finally, when we broke, when this, when this production company said, we'll lose our shirt, we can't do it. Jen was 17, right? Yeah. So she, yeah. We were free to cast someone really close to the age range of the protagonist. We were free to cast whoever felt really, really right with the film. That's good. And then we were free to proceed. And it was just ultimately, it was the biggest blessing. So, the, I mean, that's so interesting. So, so them sort of freeing you from this in December, in, in uh, Halloween, right? Yeah. Allowed you to then year, make different year to pivot. Got yeah. it. Okay. So that's uh, an interesting yeah. point of, of reference. So then oh, you no, now we, have we, this we freedom. Yeah. We couldn't just, yeah, you couldn't just that. go into oh, filming in November. No, no, no. And, um, and wow. what we was for half the budget that it was going to be for, and then for 1.8, we were able to get a wow. guaranteed loan. We had a small group of people that were willing to guarantee the loan. Like so people was, you knew or people in the industry that were willing to, to people, do people this? We knew, people we knew. Amazing. Um, and so, the, but the, you know, it was kind of funny that we didn't, uh, Ann and I didn't know that the actual loan was, you know, it, it, we didn't really face the reality that that debt was in our name, you know? Um, yeah. Well, that's good that you didn't face it. Because... <laughs> no, no, that was part of her leap of faith mentality. Yeah. You know, you can't always do it. And, you can't, and when you grow up, you can't do it. But at the time it was a blessing actually, because it was enough to proceed, you know, and it was enough to um, put the film in the can and to post it. And, and again, you said you had that freedom and, now to really make the film you wanted to make. Yes. yes. And what came of it was really fortunate, you know? Oh yeah. Sundance also, it's hard. Am I a Sundance? Am I a recipient of phenomenal input into my career from Sundance? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Do I want to be called a Sundance darling? No, that hurts my pride, right? I'm thinking, oh, it means like you got a leg up. You were, you were given this, you, you were designated, you were chosen. Or of course that makes me feel weird. You know, I'm like, oh God, but but they, it, they like the film, you know? <laughs> listen, it could also be a positive connotation for a positive you know, I will say this, first of all, you worked very hard to get into the Sundance lab, right? Which is kind of your entry point into Sundance. Yeah. Second of all, all your work, you worked really hard for. So it's not like Sundance is just going, I'm going to take anything she does and make it into no, something no. great. Right. But yeah, I do think that that's, you know, having that sort of connection with Sundance maybe allows them to see your work 
maybe, right? Because they've seen your work previously and they know you're doing yeah. it. But that doesn't mean I think it guarantees anything. No, no, it never Right? Does. So oh, I, no. I think some people like, like that too, where it was no go. For there is a distinction yeah. there that they, yeah. they could see your work and go, okay, maybe Deborah, maybe not this one. You know what I mean? But they love your work. And I think shows, and obviously with the case of Winter's Bone, it made sense because everyone else also really took to it as well. And, and it's also so, I mean, that must've been so validating that the work you put together had that commercial success specifically because that production company probably were like so upset. I hope that they, they missed out on this, right? They missed out on reception that the movie got because they pulled out so early. So that must've been very exciting and validating. Yeah. It was happy because also roadside attraction decided to distribute it and they did a great job. So you got the grand jury prize in two, in 2010, was it? Yes. And then then roadside attractions approached you, I assume. Yeah. And look back with appreciation on that. Yeah. So the success of Winter's Bone definitely made it so that people will send me scripts or people will show me novels. And it made it so that if I express interest in something, I can have a conversation with someone. Right. It absolutely did open doors to be considered a filmmaker that, you know, gets excited by material, will will, will go the mile for things. I think people also asked you to be part of things like the CNN, the movies thing, right? The couple episodes of, of uh, where they go back, you know, they, they go and they ask, you know, different filmmakers in the industry, they're, you know, about movies and their history movies, their impact on culture. And I believe you're on two episodes of that. So it it probably opened up a whole new side of the industry, right? Are those things fun, by the way? I've just said, oh, oh, gosh, being a part of a, of a professional community. Yeah. You know, and feeling a part of it and, and, and yeah. it does feel good. It feels very, very, very good. So, yeah. And, and I think that Anne and I, as a team, began to be associated with people that also did um, have an interest in still continuing to work with actors that are looking for or who are hungry for roles that they haven't been, had, had access to or right. you know, been considered for. And that led us to leave no trace eventually. It took us a long time to figure out what next story we really love yes. and where to put all that ener- energy and effort. And, and then so Stray Dog in between had yeah. expanded my interest in understanding post-traumatic stress and, and how that plays out in our culture. And, you know, like I've said, the legacy, the kid, you know, the kids, the children of PTS, children experience you know, it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and all of that added up so that when the next novel was presented, which was the name of that novel, was My Abandonment. We, we the film has a different name than the right. novel. No trace. Um, yes, and the interest was really high, and the fact that it had protagonist was a plus, and that, yeah, and the unexpected nature of meeting Thomason Mackenzie, yeah. who I met via Skype and did not understand. I didn't know that she was in a different hemisphere when I was speaking to her. She used her American accent. and <laughs> so it was Oh, kind of, I love you know, that. So I just meant like she did something so outstanding. You know, she really internalized the story. She'd gone just like Jennifer had done. When people put this extra effort, right, you feel it. Like their audition is just steeped with this insight that she was going to bring, you know, so she just really wowed me. Um, Thomas oh. really struck me like, she has really read this. She's she really read this. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um and has has imagined it and has tried to like conjure what she would do and just a beautiful yeah. encounter and just so grateful. Today, really, like the multi-part documentary that's finished this summer. That's that's well definitely the whole definitely whole, like the color won't be done and we're still picking no, but, it, but- the, the raw... story is laid out. The story yes. is laid out. The, that's the, huge. That's... The nine the nine parts. <laughs> the, that was inspired from a project too. I mean, I mean, you asked that connection. Like, yes, actually, this one though speaks to something really kind of it's tricky because it's complicated. This actually started as a fiction, so it's the other direction. Oh wow! So this a... was, huh. this was presented to me as a script that was um, very inspired by a television show back in the day called The Wire, which was set in East Baltimore. Yeah. Dealt with life on the streets and with- Terrific um, show. Yeah. And there was a script written for a character in the, from that show. And it was about sort of her life after, you know, after the, the time frame of the show. Right. And it was a beautiful script and it had tremendous complicated issues in it. It was, it was a political script. It was, as I was doing the research, as she- 
the lead that was that the script was written for. As she showed me a lot of details of her community and introduced me to some of her close friends, one of the stories, including her own, that I was actually drawn to was her post-carceral life and her very dear friend's mm. post-carceral experience. Interesting. And I said, oh my God, this, this is, is hard to say, but I don't lo- I no longer, first of all, as a white person, it became increasingly complicated every single year. Interesting. Who tells what story, what, what's, what's even good or right or appropriate? Or, I said, forgive me, everyone, but I, I need to pivot to post-carceral. My storytelling, my added value as a storyteller will be best deployed in a story about life after prison. That's how that project went from kind of a uh, fictional script to ultimately it, it helped me so much. You know, I'm not a native New Yorker. I actually realized that after living here this many decades, it was kind of like I needed to make a uh, film in the city in which I live. Oh, I'm looking forward to it as a native New Yorker. I mean, that's so exciting to me. And what's your ideal place for this? No, my dream would be now I'm going to like really go for it. Yes, go for it. Your opening statement that, you know, I was poised to be all prickly about, but um, the I would like this, my dream for this piece would be that it would have play in the very, very traditional entertainment industry Mm. because there are so many, I think, demographics that would possibly get something from this. There are 70 million Americans who have criminal records. A large portion of that have kind of felonies and that have altered the course of their lives and have had impact on their existence as American citizens that is grave and, and serious of a magnitude that we don't, we don't really have a way to kind of actually talk about. Oh, I love no. it. I'm really no. hoping that it does get that sort of mass distribution you, you're referring to and that people have access to it everywhere. But, but you're right. Yeah. There's just so many demographics within New York alone. Um, I should just, in the interest of time, but I just had a couple really quick questions. Sure. One is an actor. I know you've been asked this a million times and I've seen you answer this a million times, but as an actor, I get really fascinated about casting process for things. And you kind of touched based a little bit on leave no trace, but I I did want to ask a little bit about casting Jennifer Lawrence in winter's bone. You know, Jennifer Lawrence had this really great soundbite once where she was saying that there's just not (laughs) the time she was like, there's just not many great scripts that come to me as a blonde actress and young blonde actress in Hollywood. So she was like, I saw this script and right away was like, I have to do this. But from your end, uh, can you sort of talk a little bit or discuss a little bit about casting her and the process? And I think just a lot of actors who listen to this podcast would also be interested in that. What went into that? Well, I appreciate for her. I mean, it was very, it was also regionalism issue. You know, like I, I, as an East Coast person, I was anxious, you know, the, the author of the book, George's dialect of the Ozarks. And he had actually, I'm, I'm so not from there that I didn't even realize that he was actually using, pep, it was peppered with some phrases that like some of the teens had to say, oh, we actually don't say that anymore. You know, like. Right, he, yeah, makes he sense. He was a preserver and conserver of his culture. And Interesting. I was very nervous about the accent and kind of felt very weird. I, I actually did all the auditions. I, unless someone came from a Southern state, you know, I didn't, I, I said, you know, there's no need to put an accent on for this audition, you know, speak, so speak the way you speak. And uh, I'm going to work with that. Jennifer already, you know, had a foot in a lot of different work outside of her home state of Kentucky. But the fact is she also had the Kentucky accent. Yes. She knew it. She didn't use it every day, but she knew it and had heard her kin and had heard townsfolk and her, her neighbors. And yeah. And it's not the same accent as Southern Missouri, but there was an ear. There was an ear. And, Mm. And she very adorably, or at the time, I shouldn't use that word, that sounds a little condescending, but at the time, it was no. very endearing. Endearingly, she had, there was a phrase or two that he had had in the script, and she actually, I, she mentioned that she asked her parents to really define that for her, you know? Yeah. And, like, so she came with actually knowing what it meant. Because, mm-hmm. like, I actually wasn't so sure. She, you know, she enlightened me a tiny bit, you know? Like, nice. So that played, that, that was really significant, actually. Just other, authenticity. Other young women that had like that had southern roots were also very meaningful to us. I remember it was a really strong audition from an actress from Virginia. I knew she knew she knew some of the issues of the script. I, I I knew she knew from observation. You know, 
I love any time that someone can bring something from their lived experience in. Yes. And I know that's a big part of being an actor anyhow. Right. And I know that if you haven't had that lived experience, there's a way to transpose, you know, something you have had that could apply. Right. Like I, you know, there's so, I'm not familiar with all the exercises, but the one or two books I've read on acting back in the day, or I am so aware of like the very fascinating toolkit that, that actors are trained to deploy and, and exploit. So coming with the goods isn't the only criteria. On this one, it helped me a lot. Yeah, I get that. Because the audition, I was hearing a character as an outsider, I felt more confident. I felt like, okay, mm. she's going to be able to get into the set on, you know, we, and we, we knew that we were working with a real families. Right. I knew that when Jennifer got there, she would be able to hear everything and start conversation on her own terms. So I felt she was bringing this asset that I needed as well. I mean, she did a great audition, but I just mean, it was plus, 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 you know. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. No, all yeah. that's important in sort yeah. of, the understanding of, of casting, yeah. the casting choice, if you will. Yeah. I mean, if I was, if I was doing a film that was about like something on Long Island, I would love to cast someone that has real life lived Long Island, you know, experience. Yeah. As much as you can, yeah. it seems like authenticity seems to be a very sort of specific through line in, in all aspects of your filmmaking. Yes. Yes. And if someone has like a little like social work behind them or yeah, you know, they did something first before they entered acting or they do something as a day job. I mean, waiting, whatever it is. Yeah, I love I love that part of meeting an actor. Mm. Yeah. And is it true that she had some people say that she was too attractive for the role initially and she had to come off of a red eye for a second audition? And, and that's run- the legend that grew up. What I meant was I wanted her to know that, like, we wouldn't be using a lot of makeup in the film. I wanted to be fair. I wanted to disclose that. This was not in any way going to be a traditionally glamorous role, right? Like, you know, so Jennifer comes with, you know, a certain kind of beauty, super appealing quality uh, and beauty, right? That it's not to degrade that or to like, you know, Anne's like, okay, look, it's a difficult story. So having a protagonist that's easy and appealing to look at, like, go with that, go with that, Deborah, you know, understand that if her soul's aligned with the soul of the character, and she wants the best outcome for this scrappy survivor character and cares about these siblings. If she's going to put her heart in it, people are going to really respond. I think I was struggling with class issues and I was struggling with the fact that in certain hard scrabble parts of America, people age quicker than um, people lose their teeth earlier in their life than, than any of us are wanting to ever acknowledge. And that was hitting me in my research. Mm. And so, of course, there was a way in which I struggled with was I putting a veneer over something that was real about how people live when when things aren't when there are no cushions when there isn't a hedge of protection between them and difficult circumstances but in the end her desire to to really put her heart in the role and work hard and be there and be present surpassed that concern about as she said you know the Hollywood blonde who can be ultra glamorized to our who our culture will ultra glamorize when they can you know yeah it's interesting yeah it's a, it's a real it's, it's a difficult challenge they don't want to be also shut off from other things too right exactly like, exactly traditionally attractive you know like they don't want to be just sequestered into this weird velvet room yeah exactly and i think that she I and mean, and she's had such an incredible career since obviously but for that particular role she she really has exactly what you said earlier in the interview about what re needs to have this survival quality to this persistence that you know she's someone who will almost she will live throughout right there's some sort of and i remember there's this one very powerful scene and i actually was privileged to see you talk about this at brandeis when you were when you came to screen the film um and i think you were interviewed by scott feinberg who was also on the podcast but you know there's that well, there's one scene in particular that stands out to me always where you know, she Rhea's being sort of beaten by all these women and then they're brought she's brought into this almost like shed and everyone's there going like, what do we do with you, essentially? And you see this just look on her face and she talks about, you know, you can kill me as there's this element of like, we know she's going to live. You know, there was that moment of you're just watching her. She's bloodied there. You know, they're having this sort of back and forth. 
and you know that she just has something in her and it's just so beautiful as an actress that she was able to to put that out there and and to to have that that you knew that it was going to be okay even if she was in this incredibly dire circumstances and i think you know maybe in a way it doesn't matter who she is what she is how she as long as she has that sort of essential core that what you're looking for in the, in the character and so that's something as an actor i you know stands out for me in watching the film well they, you know they, i have one more i always ask a question at the end of the podcast uh and i think it i'm very actually curious what your answer would be but what is your definition of success oh, finishing projects <laughs> and being able to go again you know like yeah being able to bring your team back together and collaborate creatively with the group that you love to work with or you admire that with all their thoughts and what, what, they, what they bring to the table and to mm. identify a project and say, should we do this? Decide yes. Gosh, Deborah, thank you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, for talking, for answering all my questions, for being part of this. This is something I have thought about for a couple of years now. So it feels particularly gratifying to sit down and talk with you today and just your insight into the industry, into your career. And I'm just um, very touched, very honored and very appreciative. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's very mutual. I really admire how dedicated you are to these discussions and that you have created this forum for, you know, exploring deep interest that you have, but then bringing, drawing a lot of different people into the discussion. So I appreciate that. Participate. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.